Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. We're back this week with our final part with Pat Flynn, Stuart Getz, and Charles Taliaferro, wrapping up their discussion on the nature of the soul and substance dualism. This is the third of three parts, so if you've not listened to the first two, we'd encourage you to do so. Enjoy! So this is this is actually, I think, a good setup for, for where I want to go now is because um, uh, I can't obviously speak for Rosenberg, so I'll speak, I'll speak more generally. But I think the primary motivation, and this would, I guess, be a motivation for a sort of a naturalism, not of the more exotic sort, but of the more traditional reductive sort, sort of hardball physicalism, is some sort of claim to an epistemic or explanatory uh, superiority with fewer commitments, ontological or theoretical. Right. This is I think this is the general idea. So and actually mentioned Dr. Moreland. He does a great job of, of spelling this out in a lot of his work. And the idea is like, hey, guys, we can just science it all. Right. Uh, so I, I think that Rosenberg's primary motivation with many others is this sort of commitment to a broad scientism that we can, you know, through some sort of combinatorial method of explanation through atomic and evolutionary theory, we can explain everything that all you guys, all you religious folks or people who believe in God or the soul think you can explain, but we can do it without all the extra commitments, right? And we can do it entirely through the proven, reliable, you know, predictable enterprise of science, right? And then I think this kind of sets up a pretty interesting problem. I mean, aside from, of course, just how do you, you know, get the commitment of scientism off the ground with all the issues that that faces independently, but okay, just, just granted, right? Then I think you kind of have one and I want to get both of your thoughts on this. One of two ways that you can go: you can either kind of keep with the hardball physicalism and like try and hit those, you know, those those virtues that are supposedly in favor of your worldview, uh, but it's ultimately going to be fantastically absurd, right? You're going to have these eliminated as positions. You're not going to really explain things. You're just going to eliminate them, right? Like, ah, eh, this doesn't really fit. Doesn't really reduce to what anything that's remotely resembling what physics or chemistry is telling us about. So it must not really exist. It must not really be real, right? So you really don't explain anything, if I'm being frank, right? And you, you have this long string of, of reductions to the absurd. Or you're forced with putting things into your worldview that clearly don't fit with the scientific epistemology, right? Like, or appeals to strong emergence or all this other stuff. And then you start having all these other commitments that at the end of the day, when you take the time to actually analyze them, it's like, you guys are in no better of a position than the dualists or the theists here. In fact, it seems it's a lot worse of a position because these these components seem entirely ad hoc, right? They're not at all predicted by the theory. And in fact, you guys have a sort of line like this even in your article, the uh, the how you can how the dualist has you know effective two quote Q responses to property dualists and, and materialists and stuff like that. So sorry, I just put a lot of stuff on the table there, but I'd like for either of you to just take it in any if you agree, disagree, or develop it in any direction that you that you think it might be useful. Well, I'll just very briefly, you have to agree on what the data are uh, that need explaining. And, and so that, uh, you know, just to say something's a simpler view, uh, isn't, you know, that's just an inadequate position to espouse in a way. Uh, you, you, yeah, we want to know what the data are that have to be accounted for. And maybe we're going to want the simpler explanation, the simplest explanation of which we're aware to account for those data, but uh, you gotta, you gotta put the data on the table. 
And the people you describe, Pat, are generally people who just deny the data, uh, you know, and, and so you're not going to get very far about in, in a discussion with these people because you, you can't even agree on the data. You know, Charles, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. You have, have a go at it. Yeah, I think that's um, a good point. And so maybe moving in between what Stu observes and what Pat's observing is I agree um, 100% with Stu on it's so good that people like Alex Rosenberg are writing what they're writing. I would say I've um, I have engaged his work somewhat. Someone I've engaged more um, is Daniel Denham, mm -hmm. uh, simply because it's, um, well... He wants both. He's he, in consciousness explained. I do think that was one of his more clear books, but he's done many, many afterwards. But he does say, "I believe that there's a way the grapefruit tastes." Yes, I even. I mean, sometimes he says, "I believe we're zombies," or "I don't believe in qualia." But he he appears to think that we think, you know, that we have reasons for doing things. Now, at the end of the day. He uh, argues from bacteria to Bach, you know, for example, that there can be reason without reasoners. Mm -hmm. And so he is working with this ultimately uh, illusory understanding of the self as the center for gravitational uh, narratives mm -hmm. and so on. But the reason why I enjoy engaging in his work, as well as Rosenberg, but especially for me, uh, Dennett, is I think he is very much onto what Stu is saying that if the data or datum or data, singular or plural, mm -hmm. of subjectivity, self awareness, is is really on board, you know, on first base, you know, let's admit this this exists. It, it comes a very short road from there to uh, dualism, and I would say substance dualism. So um, you know when he uh, writes, you look the problem with mind is when you look in the brain there's no one home and i think yeah you see if there's someone home in other words there's a real subject there and you don't see the subject just, you know you're just looking in you're seeing you know 100 billion neurons and synapses and so on but there's no thought there and that becomes a we're at a fulcrum of either, well, let's pull back and go dualist, or let's go eliminative. Mm. And where he's good, I think, uh, in many ways, is trying to nudge the non-reductive materialist into either, well, dualism or eliminativism. Mm -hmm. So non-reductive materialists who say, well, I think there's still a point of view that we persons have. And he goes, oh, so you believe in a Cartesian theater. <laughs> and that's obviously supposed to be grating. Um, and then he has pictures of them. Like, so you believe the person is like behind the eyes somewhere. And, mm -hmm. and actually, um, that picture, even though misleading and a caricature, as bad as his early caricatures of Casper the Friendly Ghost <laughs> and so on, but it's still... Actually, I would prefer <laughs> than believing there's no one there. Mm -hmm. In other words, if, if, as someone once said, if you believe uh, the mind is a ghost in the machine and you no longer believe in a mind, then you just believe in a machine with no ghost. You know, it's just a machine. And we're back with Hobbes, almost matter in motion. So I think these, 
strong views press us on matters of um, whether there is a middle ground. As one philosopher, Fummerton, said, you know, in these matters, there's no Switzerland. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, you're with the allies or you're with the other side, but going completely neutral becomes very problematic. And so a neutral position now is called liberal naturalism. And some yes. of them say, oh, we believe in mind, we believe in values, normativity of reason. Some even say free will, libertarian free will, mm -hmm. even non-deterministic free will. And um, for those on the sidelines, we go, oh, great. But, you know, you're filling it up so much, you know, that eventually you go like, is it still naturalism? Right. You know, or aren't we getting either theistic or near enough? Mm -hmm. Like uh, Th Thomas Nagel, he hasn't published for almost 10 years, but Time and Consciousness, I think a great book. But he says, well, I'm I'm not going to go with theism, uh, but I'm obviously getting close to Aristotle or maybe yes. a kind of Hegelian idealism, which views mind as somehow intended or purpose. And I'd say, great. But what we're seeing, I think, in 2023 end of the year is a move towards broadening the naturalist picture and yeah. then wondering uh can we all still be naturalists yeah yeah that's a that's a great question charles and i, I have many thoughts on that i won't bore the listeners with it now except for the that when i encounter you know um naturalists that are effectively aristotelians or, or platonists um i always you know want to invite the question of, okay, well, what was motivating naturalism in the first place? Again, it was supposed to be this epistemic or explanatory superiority, right? Kind of in connection with, you know, a broadly scientific epistemology. And it seems like we've just exploded all that, right? So like, what are, what, what is the motivation anymore? Because now you have, you know, a lot of bloat in terms of theoretical or ontological commitments, and you don't seem to have that deep, fundamentally unifying and absolutely simple basement of reality that the classical theist has, which I think is the advantage of that worldview. So now you just got the kind of like this big fat thing with with even more brute facts floating around. <laughs> and the question marks have, have just kind of been moved to a different level. So my invitation is always, well, why why don't we just you know, like take that extra step and just adopt what has always traditionally been, you know, posited as the ultimate explanation of things, which of course is is God traditionally understood. Yeah. I was on a retreat with Stephen Stench, a philosophy retreat St. Olofen uh, Philosophy's departments from St. Olofen Carlton. And I, honest to God, his book, uh, Beyond Belief, just come out. He he actually, this is a true story, he recalled the book cover because of the book cover, it says, Stephen Stitch believes there are no such things as beliefs. And he said, no, I don't want to say that, you know, which would be an flagrant contradiction. But he and People like Patricia and Paul Churchland, when they say they want to get rid of folk psychology, they'll say, well, we want to not theoretically accept beliefs and desires, not that we don't desire desires or believe there are no beliefs. In any case, Stitch uh, literally said to me that um, in California, you know, somebody who just read his book said, you know, I realize the moral implications of your views that it really doesn't matter on any first order, or to use your term, Pat, hardball way, morally, um, what our ethics amounts to. Because when we're doing, Peter Van Wagen says, 
serious metaphysics, we're not allowing the psychological in. And David right. Papineau has said something like that. I can't imagine the fundamental levels of physics ever allowing psychological properties. Well, if that's, and, and so Stitch actually changed. And so what he said, well, I'm going to allow in ethics, but I'm going to allow them in pragmatically. So he winds up with a form of dualism himself. He goes, in terms of serious metaphysics, okay, ethics is part of the manifest image. It's not going to be part of the scientific image. It's not there. But we can't live that way. And so I'm going to accept the manifest image, the world of appearances. Um, no, you shouldn't che cheat on your taxes and murder. But it's going to be in the, the social world. So that, again is another way of setting up an, another kind of dualism. Yes. Yeah, really interesting observation. This is this is great. I mean, this is fascinating. I could chat with the two of you all day about all the different issues wrapped up in this. But for the sake of, of returning to, I suppose, what the, the fundamental uh, point of this conversation is substance dualism, I'd like for us now, um, before we wrap up, to at least consider a few objections, other objections against substance dualism. You know, there's some pretty famous ones, causal interaction objections, stuff like that. So perhaps I, we already mentioned one, which is do stuff to the body affect affect the mind, right? We could say more about that. And, you know, uh, sometimes those objections take on a little bit more sophisticated form uh, from neuro neuroscientific perspectives. But what I'd like to do is maybe have each of you just pick one objection that you think is interesting or or worth uh, addressing. You know, give us a sketch of it to the audience. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, ultimately uh, explain why you, why you don't find it uh, compelling. Okay, I'll, I'll jump jump first here. Uh, I, I think for the non-specialists out there, people who don't read philosophy much, if at all, uh, it, typically the opposition, the argument against dualism and, and God's existence, uh, these, uh, science is used as the, uh, the reason why these things just aren't credible. And so that what one has to ask then from these people who want to use science as the, uh, the bludgeon these views is, uh, well, why can't one believe in the soul, in God, and also believe in science? And I think uh, the most powerful objection they have is, uh, well, you... Science is methodologically committed to what people call a causal closure of the physical world. So that when you're doing your science, you're running, doing serious experimental work, you have to assume that no spirits, spooks, souls, gods, or whatever are intervening in the uh, scientific experiment in causing uh, physical events to occur. Uh, and I've, and I've ever, this is an area I've written a lot on. I just don't see why one can't concede to these people. Well, look at uh, locally, uh, for the sake of your experimental work, which, when, which you're trying to discover how one physical object, let's say, affects another physical object, why you can't, locally assume causal closure for the sake of your experimental work, but then go on and say, well, but there's no need to 
assume universal causal closure. You can do it in your experimental work, but uh, local causal closure in no way establishes universal causal closure so that what you do in science uh, doesn't in any way preclude uh, the mental uh, from affecting the physical. And uh, so I think they've raised a legitimate concern here. It's interesting, at least I find it interesting, uh, this idea of methodologically to do science, you have to assume the closure of the physical world. And I should say that what they mean by that is uh, only the physical can can explain the physical. You can't invoke a mental explanation of a physical event when you're doing science. And uh, I don't see why we can't say to that, yeah, you're right. When you're doing your scientific work, you assume causal closure uh, at a local level, but uh, you know that in no way requires that you assume it universally so that the mental can never affect uh, the physical. That just seems to me to be a, a gigantic intellectual leap. Uh, and we want to, why not assume it locally? Concede that, but that shows us nothing uh, about the universal causal closure. And uh, I've never been persuaded in the least that you can't believe in science, in local closure, uh, but also believe uh, in at the uh, at the broader level uh, that the mind, the mental, can still affect the physical. So uh, that's my interest, Charles. Uh, yeah, I t- entirely agree, and I think also with respect to the law of the conservation of energy, um, which might apply to closed systems. But who is to say when you have a mindful individual, this is a closed system? system. Mm-hmm. And there are other ways to go with. Co- conservation of energy principle, whether uh, mind-body interaction would um, just simply affect the distribution rather than the amount of energy. There's also the notion is, is conservation of energy universal throughout physics? All things we can raise here, but I, I would more or less go just with Stu. The only thing I would add is that um, science without um, mental causation is inconceivable. So when modern science began with Galileo, Kepler, Copernicus, Newton, they were concerned with mind-independent matter. So Newton's laws of motion were not supposed to explain Romeo and Juliet and their attraction to each other. No, they're talking about mindless bodies, their acceleration and reaction and the like. And so what happened was um, the at least temporary or provisional um, bracketing of the mind in the study of nature eventually became in the 1900s and later, you know, well, through the 1900s, eventually became like, well, as JJC Smart said, well, if we can explain everything uh, just using the laws of physics and uh, chemistry, biology, without going beyond it, why do we need to do that when we come to consciousness? And so there is this, um, uh, I picture this as Robert Louis Stevenson's um, short story about a man who is killed by a shadow. He has a shadow and, and sometimes and the shadow comes alive and kills him. Is We have created the sciences. They've been created by subjective, observing, fully conscious, self-aware persons who are able to remember things, make observations, theories, raise arguments. The argument from reason holds here. And um, we then might move to emphasize that practical 
uh, neuroscience with respect to all the senses and thinking and reason and memory um, consists in a kind of implicit dualism. That is, we we actually wouldn't know what a subject is thinking without reports on their um, on their experiences. And this obviously can be continuous. So Peter, Paul, and Mary might say one thing, and then we go George and Ringo. Well, we're going to assume Peter, Paul, and Mary. Were. Uh, so it can be cumulative, but fundamentally, we know about correlations of the visual cortex, how we smell and hear, and so on, through uh, correlations. And correlations are not identities. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that needs to be repeated with Nancy Murphy and others. We say, yes, we have these wonderful correlations. But have you, in a single case, established an identity of the mental and physical? And I would say no. Uh, so cases like that Paul Churchland comes up, we know that heat is mean kinetic energy, and it goes through the other senses. And the same thing holds, is that, yes, mind-independent heat, like if you're talking about the sun, uh, yeah, mean kinetic energy. But if you're talking about the experience of warmth, mm-hmm. is that mean kinetic energy may be the cause, along with the central state nervous system and the pain centers of the brain and so on. Uh, yes, that's the cause of the, I think Stu introduced in her book, the ouchiness of pain. Um, I th- I'm not sure that's going to win a Nobel Prize for literature, <laughs> but I agree, pain is ouchy. And it, it's it's these cases where they'll say, well, we've established that um, sound is these um, sound waves, essentially. Well, no, it hasn't established that the experience of sound, like the auditions, we're back to does a tree fall in the forest make a sound? Well, if you mean by auditions, and there's no hearing being anywhere, uh, no, there's no sound, actual sound. But if you just mean sound waves, yes. And um, so anyway, I think Stu was 100% correct in what he was saying. And I just think it can be forced um, a little more in an interlocutory situation, friendly and so on, but is that science itself relies on mental causation. Yeah, and scientists themselves conduct their their experimental work for purposes, and purposes are mental. And so you wouldn't even have science if it weren't done for a purpose, and that you know, to explain the existence of science, you have to invoke a mental explanation. Yeah, the philosopher Whitehead said, a scientist who yeah. has the purpose of showing there are no such things as purpose makes a very interesting object of study. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's always, we talked about, you know, attaching costs to different positions. And of course, one of the, perhaps the most useful thing to do is, is offer the cost of having to give the very thing up that was motivating your position in the first place, right? With that, that's that's sort of the old, and I think you've made a very strong case for that here today. And of course, we're just scratching the surface and I wanna invite people, if they haven't already, to make sure they get a copy of that wonderful volume, Minding the Brain. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and of course, they can read uh, your full article there along with many other quite excellent contributions. But before we go, I'd love to hear from uh, both of you. Uh, just a little bit about uh, what you're working on next and maybe where people can uh, keep up with you and your work, if you wouldn't mind. You can go first, Charles. Oh, well, um, I just finished um, a contribution to this St. Andrew's Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I tried to make as good as Stuart's. 
uh, where he did one on uh, substance dualism and uh, Christian theology. It's really excellently done. I highly recommend it. So I did one on mind and consciousness, which was a little broader, and it maintained that mind and consciousness is fundamental to, um, it's a theological encyclopedia, so I said religious worldviews globally. And then I discussed the revolt against dualism, something that uh, Stu covers, and I reference him to do some some of the work I oh, really? uh, like on Nancy Murphy. I said, see the important work of Stu. <laughs> yes. um, but then I, I go through the revolt against eliminativism, the revolt against all these people that are going, well, that's going too far. And I suggest, yeah, you can believe in mind and consciousness without substance dualism, but it's a little bit of a, um, sure, be my guest. Uh, <laughs> but it's an invitation where it, it strikes me that we'll have you um, coming home, I hope, before you finish the article. Oh, that, that's fascinating. I can't wait to read that. Thank you for sharing, Charles. And uh, Stuart, how about you? What, do you? what are you working on next? Yeah, well, I did. I just finished an article on soul, the soul and science in the Bible, basically. Uh, just had a book come out on uh, C.S. Lewis's view of higher education. Mm-hmm. And uh, higher ed is a huge topic right now. And uh, I've become very interested in Lewis in the last oh, 15, 20 years of my life. Never read much C.S. Lewis, truthfully, until uh, I went on a fall break one year. So I just had a book come out on Lewis and uh, his take on higher ed. And... Uh, Right now, uh, for the first time in my in probably thirty some years, I haven't got anything on the burner right now. It's kind of a nice, uh, kind of a nice position to be in for just for a while, hopefully. But uh, so, yeah, that's where I am right now. Yeah, well, well, great. Thank you both for your wonderful contributions. Again, the volume that we've been discussing today is called "Minding the Brain." I hope people pick it up. We'll, of course, put the link in the show notes to do so. And wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it's on Mind Philosophy for the People or Mind Matters, we sort of teamed up for some of these interviews. Very happy to be doing that with them. Please be sure to subscribe and share it with anybody that you think might be interested. So thank you both so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute blast. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.